Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams. I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia. The name of the church is Calvary 316. Our service time is 10.30 a.m. on Sundays. If you're local, check us out. We're on Highway 316, hence Calvary 316. And uh, as mentioned before, reiterate it, our website, calvary316.com, .net, .org, .tv. It doesn't really matter. Google us. You'll find us. I do hope, regardless, that you stay with me over the next hour or so as I seek to deconstruct the negative perceptions of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing today's relevant topics in an honest and a genuine way. And I want to kind of open, in way of opening, to say that uh, grace rocks. Like the grace of God is the most revolutionary, radical concept ever dropped into the human consciousness. It's so gnarly. It's, it's divine. It doesn't originate in any other context apart from scripture the bible christianity as a matter of fact grace is the one thing that sets christianity apart from all the other world religions now sometimes christianity will be accused of being like you're the only group of people that are exclusive and that's just a crock yeah it's true christianity jesus said i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes with the father but through me yeah the bible christian is very exclusive it's jesus or it's not. But don't be mistaken, every other world religion has the same claims of exclusivity. All of them. The one thing, though, that sets Christianity apart from every other worldview, concept or not, philosophy, is this idea of, of unmerited favor. That God would bestow something to me apart from me earning it or deserving it or meriting it unmerited favor it's 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 unbelievable now if you've listened to this show in any length of time or if you've listened to any of the uh the actual teaching episodes of outlaw radio or our 30 minute broadcast or maybe you've ventured to the teaching site which is calvary uh from calvary316.tv you can find c316.tv uh, all of the teaching uh, that we do at the church, uh, you, you, it doesn't take very long to realize that I'm a firm believer that grace changes everything. And I say that from, from really an experience. It was the grace of God that changed me. And trust me, if it can change me, it can change anyone or anything. And every once in a while, so I did an entire series of messages through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We titled it Outlaw Church. What life looks like outside the law. Outlaw Church. And it was this entire study on grace that just set the trajectory I believe I'll be on for the rest of my life. It was really the reason why when Josh and I were talking about starting this show, about being on the radio, Outlaw Radio, came from outlaw church it came from grace it's what the outlaw concept is all about grace changing everything i feel so strongly about all of this and i'll announce this on the air that jess and i are, ha are going to have in december a little girl your prayers would would be appreciated but we've settled on a name we're going to name our little girl mabel grace adams now i have a quincy adams i have a theodore adams my little girl is going to be Mabel Grace. Mabel means lovable. 
a lovable grace. I was talking to my mom about this, and, and when I told her the name, she goes, that's fitting. It really is because of, of just this work that God has done in your life about grace. It's my platform. It's the only message I have, honestly. But I think it's the only message that truly matters. And from time to time, I run across a section of scripture that I think just perfectly illustrates the concept of grace. Recently, okay, I'm teaching through the Gospel of John. Fitting, it's titled The Gospel of Grace as a series. And I was at the end of John chapter 4, and I taught a Bible study, and one of my elders came up and he told me, he said, Zach, that perfectly articulated everything that we've been discussing for the last four years. And you need to share this on the radio. I thought, you know what? I, I try to speak more to just kind of topics and keep this conversational, but, but I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a Bible study. So if you're listening, just kind of hunker down. It'll be the same break, same format, but, but roll with me, okay? John chapter 4. This is how John chapter 4 opens. Therefore, when the Lord Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that he made and baptized more disciples than John, John the baptizer, that Jesus and his disciples left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but Jesus needed to go through Samaria. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, I only read that to set context because Jesus has this whole exchange with the woman at the well. We're not going to talk about that. If you then jump to verse 43, and if you're driving, don't, don't look, just listen. But in verse 43, we're told that now after two days, Jesus departed from there. This is departed from Sychar, Samaria. And he went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So, verse 45, when Jesus came to Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had gone to the feast. Now, I, I just a little housekeeping. I need to explain what's going on. The flow of John's gospel here is important. So I'm just going to summarize a few things. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples, they make this long pilgrimage. They make a pilgrimage from Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, this region around the Sea of Galilee, down to Jerusalem. And they make this journey, this pilgrimage, to celebrate specifically the Feast of Passover. And upon their arrival, Jesus does something gnarly, man. Crazy. He goes in, and he's an unknown commodity. And he clears out the temple. How dare you make my father's house a den of thieves? And then, for the next week, he proceeds to teach the people and perform miracles. Now, for context, it was during one of these evenings during this week that Jesus has an incredible conversation in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Now, once Passover concluded, it wraps up the pilgrims that Jesus had initially come with. They go back to Galilee. But instead of going with them, John 3 ends with Jesus doing something else. He, he camps out in Judea specifically at the Jordan River, and, he, and he's preaching and his disciples are baptizing along with John the baptizer in his ministry. Now, now the point is that when you get to verse 45 of John chapter 4, this is the first time that Jesus has been back in Galilee since those exciting seven days that had taken place in Jerusalem. Like, like at this moment, Jesus' only miracle taking place in Galilee has been transforming water into wine at a private wedding. 
But because of all of the things that these pilgrims from Galilee had seen Jesus do with their own eyes in Jerusalem, John tells us that upon his return, the Galileans received Jesus. They're excited. They're pumped up. Jesus is known. He's a hot ticket item. Now, the subtle contrast of the Galileans receiving Jesus while the Samaritans had believed in Jesus, accepting him, we're told, as the Christ, the Savior of the world, does set the stage for the final story in John 4. A story that concludes in verse 54, saying that this again is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, verse 46, back to the story here. We're told, so Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Galilee, Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Now, let's begin by just kind of quickly establishing what we know from the text about this certain nobleman. First, the Greek word that we have written as nobleman can be literally translated as kingsman. No doubt, this man as a kingsman was an officer for King Herod. Herod is the man whom the Romans had given jurisdiction over the region of Galilee. Now, since Capernaum was one of the larger cities in that region, it acted as the headquarters for this certain nobleman. Now, with that in mind, I think it's safe for us to conclude, or at least to assume, that the nobleman was both wealthy and likely influential. As the story develops, we're going to learn that this man had servants. And that detail further substantiates that position. He had wealth. He had influence. In many ways, his status as, as, a, as a counselor, as status within the king's court, it, it afforded this man the kind of life that most didn't have, like a life that was generally insulated from many of the common hardships people faced that in, in that day. The second thing that we know from the text is that, that this nobleman was a father. Specifically, he's a father of a young boy. Now, the Greek word that's translated as son in verse 47 is generic, just kind of implying he had a male gender. In verse 49, we're, we're told that he was a child, indicating that he was young in age. Like, imagine that this man's the father of a son, a son who's an infant, a toddler. <laughs> as a dad of two boys, there's no question in my mind that for this father, and I think his, his actions show this, his son was the apple of his eye. Thirdly, we also know that this man was facing a personal trial of such proportions that he's utterly and completely desperate, right? Like, though it's true, this nobleman was largely immune from many of the challenges that, that faced the common man. It's equally true, right? That, that no position, no amount of money can can insulate a man from sickness. Sickness, it strikes everyone. Death doesn't care. Your social economic status, your ethnicity, your position, your power. Tragically, John tells us that this man's young son was at the point of death. Like in, in actuality, by the nobleman's later admission to Jesus, it, it would appear that the boy's death was all but certain. 
Aside from, from this detail, we're also told in verse 52 that this little man was specifically suffering from a high fever. Once again, as a dad, that's, that's a detail that strikes a chord with me. Like in, in the Greek, the word means fiery heat. Like I could tell you, and if you're a parent, you'll sympathize. There's nothing worse in this world than having a, a child sick, but, but what, what's worse, a young child sick with a fever. Like not only are, are just young children unable to tell you what's wrong, like where it hurts, leaving you to, to do nothing but just kind of guess. But fever in a child, it's brutal, isn't it? Like to hold a child in your arms, feel them burn. You feel them burning up. You, you see the sweat, followed by bone-twisting chills. It, it's, it's a terrible experience, especially such a terrible fever. Yeah, as you'd reason, since this kingsman possessed considerable means, there's no doubt in my mind, no question, his child, his sick child, had, had received the best health care available. He, this man and his wife had consulted with doctors. They'd visited specialists, gotten second opinions, tried various treatments. They'd even probably been visited by the local rabbi and prayed for. They had round-the-clock nursing care, but all to no avail. Now, because most men are problem solvers. Having a sick child, being in this situation, man, it hit this dude at his deepest levels, right? He wanted to solve the problem, but he couldn't. And the inability to do something, anything, compounded the torment. I'm sure this man had even cried out to God to take the sickness upon himself, to spare his child. Sadly, though, the, the diagnosis is terminal. No one could do anything. The man couldn't do anything. The doctors couldn't do anything. Imagine the hopelessness he was experiencing. But the final thing we're told is that this nobleman ends up going to Jesus when he heard that he had come into Galilee. He, he came to Jesus. And that's a detail. I just want to I want to let marinate while we take just this quick break. We'll be right back for more on the Outlaw Radio Show. Hi, my name is David Guzik, and I'm a friend of Zach and the entire team at Outlaw Radio. One of the things I like most about Outlaw Radio is Zach's desire to challenge Christians to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on their own. The sad reality is too many Christians don't know what they believe yet alone why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to Outlaw Radio tackling the tough topics you might not hear at church on Sundays, their desire is to equip, inspire, and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this process, Zach wanted me to let you all know of two free resources essential for any serious Bible student. Aside from my full Bible commentary available at EnduringWord.com, the resources you can access at BlueLetterBible.org will truly transform the way you study the Bible. Aside from their treasure trove of free commentaries, BlueLetterBible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it easy to dive into the original languages behind a biblical text. So if you want to dig deeper into your study of Scripture, check out EnduringWord.com as well as 
blueletterbible.org. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. I pastor a church. It's called Calvary 316. And man, God's grace for the last several years has been rocking my world. And one of the things I was really excited about was getting back to a gospel. So that all these things I was learning about God's grace, experiencing about God's grace, I, I wanted to teach through the life of Jesus from that context, God's grace. So I've been teaching the gospel of grace, a study through the gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I ran across this story, I taught this story at the end of John chapter 4, about a nobleman. A nobleman that's in a very desperate situation. He has wealth, he has influence, he has power. And yet his son, his young son, is sick, terminal. He's going to die. It's a matter of fact. It's going to happen. There's nothing he can do, the doctors can do, no one can do. And yet he hears that Jesus had come into Galilee. And understand, within the context of the flow of John's gospel, this man has never met Jesus, has no experience with Jesus, All he knows of Jesus is what had taken place during Passover. We we can't even say he was there or that he was an eyewitness. But while in Jerusalem, we're told that Jesus had taught the people and demonstrated power, miraculous power. No doubt this nobleman, maybe he had seen it, maybe he had been there or he had just heard about it, but he knew Jesus was coming and he had been privy to the the gossip mill. Jesus was back. This man had, who had done such amazing things in Jerusalem, I'm going to go. As John recalls this scene, you know, he makes no mention of what Jesus was presently doing. All, all he records for us is the desperate actions of this nobleman. Like, like John tells us that, that this man, he, he goes to Jesus and he implores Jesus to come down and heal his son. Well, this man had enough knowledge of Jesus to believe that Jesus had the power to heal his son. I mean, why else come? The only issue seems to center upon whether or not he could convince Jesus to come down from Cana to make the trip to his home in Capernaum. Now, though we're not given the specific details of his appeal, what he's imploring, I reckon nothing was off limits, right? This man probably offered Jesus money political influence. He probably made promises, guaranteed he'd be a better man, do all the things you and I would do in such a a desperate situation. As a matter of fact, in the original language, the word translated as implored, it can better be stated that he begged. Like his son was dying, would die. He's out of options. So he comes to Jesus just with a hope and a rumor and he begs him for help. You know, one of the things that, that, that blows my mind is this man cared not of what anyone thought of him, right? Like his need, his pressing need trumped his pride. Like in this culture, imagine this man. I mean, he's donning his fancy robes, robes reserved for, for dignitaries. But he totally dispenses with the pleasantries, any formalities, and he comes and he falls before his face, prostrate before Jesus, a man he doesn't know. Like in that culture, this man's, this man's acts, a man of such incredible clout resorting to begging, it was unheard of. What John is recording for us would shock his audience. And yet, his circumstances, his dying boy, 
It had stripped him of any sense of hubris and all decorum. For this man, time was of the essence, and he saw Jesus as his final hope. So John 4, verse 48, we're told that Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. But the nobleman said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. Now I will admit that Jesus' response here comes across a little insensitive, doesn't it? Like especially in light of the desperate man who's begging him for help, right? Laying down on the ground before him pleading that Jesus might help his, his dying son. Like Jesus saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no man's believe. I mean, like that kind of struck, it strikes me a little weird, right? And yet, please note that Jesus is articulating here a very important point. Now, in making the statement, unless you people, note that's plural. It's not directed at the man, but, but to the larger audience. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. What Jesus is doing here is he's, he's issuing a rebuke of Israel along with a particular challenge to this man in the context, once again, the flow of John's gospel, of Jesus' recent experiences with the Samaritans. What While the Galileans had received Jesus because of the signs and wonders they had seen him perform in Jerusalem, the reality is they had yet to believe in Jesus for who he was, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And in contrast, while Jesus had performed no miracle in Samaria, the entire town of Sychar believed Jesus was not just a great person, but the Christ, the Savior. And why? Not because of signs and wonders, but because of his word. That's what the text tells us. Not only is Jesus here condemning a faith-based system solely on what one sees, but he's illustrating the truth that greater faith is demonstrated when one believes God's word and then acts according to God's word. This is why, in response to the man begging him to come before his child dies, what does Jesus say? He just says to him, go your way. Your son lives. Like right from the beginning, you should note that Jesus is seeking to correct a fundamental misconception behind the man's request. And in correcting this misconception, expand his understanding as to who Jesus actually was. Though the nobleman rightly believed that Jesus had the power to heal his son, what was the false premise? The false premise was that he believed that Jesus had to be present to perform such a miracle, that he had to come to Capernaum. You know, on a, on a side note, well, this isn't exactly relevant to this particular story. I should also mention the other misconception was that a miracle was dependent upon a specific timetable. Come before the child dies. As, as you'll come to learn about Jesus by reading through the, the Gospel of John, is that as it pertained to his friend Lazarus, Jesus would still be able to heal the boy even if he had died. Now, what is essential to your understanding about Jesus' statement to this desperate man was that Jesus was giving him, equipping him with something, an incredible promise. The man's desperate, he's freaking out, and Jesus calms his fears. He declares to him, what? Three words. Your son lives. Your son lives. Now, now to be fair, believing such a promise, undoubtedly, demanded an improbable measure of faith in Jesus. 
on the part of this nobleman. I mean, isn't it true that a promise is really only as sure as the person giving it? Like, I could promise to give you a million dollars. Take one look at my bank account, and you know I can't make good on it. But if Bill Gates is like, I, I got you, million dollars. A promise is really only as sure as the person giving it. But once again, and in light of the fact that the, the, the nobleman had a limited exposure to Jesus at best, Jesus' challenge, it centers upon the way in which this man viewed Jesus. Don't miss that. The man wanted Jesus to physically come and heal his son. Instead, what does Jesus do? He equips him with a promise that his son was fine and sent him on his way. Obviously here, the crux of the situation and the issue of faith would come down to what? The trustworthiness of Jesus and his word. When Jesus says to this desperate man, your son lives, (laughs) I think it's safe to assume so many obvious and natural questions immediately begin swirling around in this man's mind, right? How can he know that? How can that be true? Like, what authority can he make such a claim? Can I trust that what he just said to me is true? Is his word reliable? Can I believe him? You see, it's in this moment. The nobleman has to make a decision, right? Believe Jesus' word and the promise that he had just been given and obey, or doubt the promise, fail to believe, and remain hopeless. This is his decision. As a Christian... I'm sure that you know the importance of believing in God's word and believing in God's promises. But but let me ask you this. Do you know why belief in God's word is the greatest form of faith? Greater than a belief based on signs and wonders or what one can see? You see, believing in God's word and more specifically the promises that God has given you in his word and then acting accordingly is essential It is the greatest form of faith because it requires an absolute confidence and faith in Jesus, the person of God. Think about it. In making the appeal for the nobleman to believe, to trust, to place his confidence in his word, this was akin to Jesus asking the man, bro, believe me. Will you believe me? Will you believe in me? Your son is well. And when it's all said and done, the man has to make two important determinations about Jesus. First, did Jesus have the power to heal his son apart from being physically present? And secondly, would Jesus make a promise, especially to a man in a desperate state, that wasn't true? Think of it a a different way. This is is the determination, the decision the man had to make. He, He had to reach a conclusion... Was Jesus able? And and then secondly, was Jesus the type of man that would make a false promise to a desperate man? Well, listen, we're running against a hard break. We're going to continue this story because the radical part of this is about to happen. So don't go anywhere. Come back. Stay here. More for the Outlaw Radio Show. Hey, this is Josh with the Outlaw Radio Show. Pastor Zach is doing something a little bit different today, as you can tell, going through the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Grace, a recent study that he shared at his home church where he pastors Calvary 316. Be sure to stay with us for part two of the Outlaw Radio Show. 
We're back with part two of the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Here's Pastor Zach with more from the Gospel of Grace, John. Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. My name is Zach Adams, and we're looking at a section of Scripture at the end of John chapter 4 about a nobleman. Now, quick recap, this man is in a desperate situation. No amount of wealth, influence, power, health care, doctors, nurses, it doesn't matter. His son, his baby boy is dying, is going to die. And so hearing that Jesus had returned to the area, hearing the rumors that Jesus had demonstrated miraculous power, the man throws caution to the wind, buries his pride, and he comes and he falls before Jesus, and he begs Jesus to heal his son, to come to Capernaum to heal his son. But Jesus doesn't go. Instead, he just tells the man, your son lives. And it's in that moment the man has to make a decision. First, did Jesus have the power to heal his son apart from being physically present? Did he have to go to Capernaum? Could he do it right there? And secondly, he had to determine, was Jesus the type of man that would make a false promise to a desperate man? Well, we get to the second half of of verse 50, John 4, and we're told, so the man believed the word Jesus spoke to him. And he went his way, and he... And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed. And his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, there are some who make the case that the miracle of the story centered upon Jesus' ability to supernaturally know the child had gotten better, as if the miracle was a word of knowledge. And, And while there is some merit to this, I mean, really, apart from the supernatural, I mean, how else would Jesus have known the boy was alive and and would be fine? Sadly, though, such a position fails to give Jesus his due, right? Like, notice, notice, when the nobleman gets word from his servants that the child had indeed pulled through what happens we're told that he inquired of them the hour when his son had gotten better like in the greek this word would be better translated as when the child began to mend it's as though he's asking hey when did my son start turning the corner when i left he was gonna die when did things start getting better but it's the response of his servants to the question that's telling right We're told that they replied, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the nobleman, right logically, he wanted to know when the child started to show signs of improvement. But the servants basically respond to him, what? You want to know when he got better? Well, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left, meaning the fever left or literally the fever was sent away. My point is that the servants are telling the man there was not a gradual improvement. It was one moment the boy was about to die, and then, boom, in an instance, the fever's gone. It happened instantly. It wasn't gradual. He didn't get better. He didn't mend. The fever left. Now, it's at this point that I think most of the commentary on this passage falls off the rails. And in doing so, I think completely misses the point. And this is why we're talking about this today. Like, let me set up a thought with a simple but very important question. I think many get wrong. When, in this story, was the boy healed? Now, there are those who will use this story to emphasize the essential importance of obedience. 
obeying God's word and trusting in God's promises, especially when it comes to a person experiencing the blessings of God. In actuality, they will answer this question claiming that the boy was healed the moment the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and went to return home. But regrettably, this isn't what the text actually tells us happened. Notice that when the man leaves Jesus and begins the trek home, only to run into his servants that are coming to inform him that the boy was indeed fine, he immediately begins to inquire as to the specific moment the healing took place. Then, after an exchange with the servants, the nobleman determines what? Quote, it was the same hour Jesus said to him, your son lives. That's his conclusion. Like, understand, the man's inquiry leads him to an important realization. That when Jesus spoke those three words, your son lives, that the fever left and his son was healed. Now, don't miss that. But the way in which John sets up the story tells us something very important. The miracle of the boy being healed happened when Jesus spoke and not when the man believed. The implications are, are incredible, right? The implications being that the healing occurred when? Before the man's obedience. When Jesus said the words. And was therefore, because it was before the man's obedience, was independent of the nobleman's actions altogether. Yes, it's true that this passage tells us the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went his way. And he did this before he saw any tangible results, and we should give him credit for this. But it's also true that it was only on his way home, equipped with and acting upon this promise made by Jesus, that his servants met him and told him that his son was alive. Like an amazing fact one can't dispute. Like obviously, we know this man possessed a genuine faith in Jesus' word. Jesus' word that his son would live. And we know this because he was willing to act. Willing to act as if the miracle had occurred before seeing any evidence the miracle had occurred. His obedience, yes, it's true, was evidence of a real faith. I don't want to take that away or minimize it. But, and this is the question I personally could not escape, and one I didn't hear many commentators address. Was it the nobleman's obedience and faith in Jesus' word that yielded the healing. Think about it another way. If the nobleman had not believed, would his son have died? That's a heavy question, right? If the nobleman, so Jesus says, your son lives, and if the nobleman had been like, man, forget you. How do you even, you can't know that. I can't believe you would say such a thing to a man as desperate as I am. You know what? Forget this mess. I'm going to go find somebody else. I'm going to find some, some, somebody else that will, will, will treat this with some seriousness. Like if the nobleman had reacted in such a way, would his boy have died? Honest, genuine question. And let me answer. Absolutely not. I, and I know this might come across controversial, 
But I honestly believe that the young boy would have been healed regardless of the actions of his father. Once again, let's say the man, upon hearing Jesus' promise, your son lives, proceeded to scoff at his word, and went some other place other than home. The boy would not have died. In actuality, I actually, I kind of think the story would have had the same conclusion. The man would have, would have stomped off in disgust, upset. He would have wandered around. But at some point, what would have happened? The man would have either began the journey home or his servants would have found him. And it would have been at either point that what would he have learned? That his son had been healed. That his son lived and he would have asked, when did this happen? And he would have put it together. It was when Jesus spoke those three words. You see, the man's obedience didn't yield the blessing of Jesus. Why? Because the blessing came before his obedience. And here's why I can say with absolute certainty the boy was healed the very moment Jesus spoke the three words and that the healing had nothing to do with the man or his faith. According to to Isaiah 55 verse 11, this is what the prophet says, what scripture declares. It's an undeniable truth. We're told that God's word never returns void. Never. What this means is that if Jesus who is the Son of God, he's God incarnate, if Jesus utters the words, your son lives, the man's son is going to live regardless of anything else that happened. It's the same word that causes the dead to rise, that hung the moon and the sun and the stars in the sky. God's word doesn't return void because God's word has power. And if Jesus said your son lives, it doesn't matter what the man thought, the boy was going to live. One of the missions of Outlaw Radio is to bring your attention to ministry resources that will benefit your personal study of the Bible and spiritual growth. With this in mind, we want you to check out Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Not only is their vision to help the thinker believe, but they exist to help the believer think. To accomplish both of these aims, their website, rzim.org, is filled with tons of free resources aimed at not only answering your own difficult questions, but with the intention of providing the necessary tools to defend your faith in an ever-growing, hostile world. Once again, you can learn more about Ravi Zacharias International Ministries by visiting rzim.org. That's rzim.org. We're talking about a story recorded at the end of John chapter 4. A story about the nobleman coming to Jesus. His son is dying. Jesus says, your son lives. And then we're told that the man believed Jesus' word. Now on his way home, his servants tell him, your son lives. And so the man inquires, when? And then he puts it all together. That the boy was healed when Jesus said, your son lives. And, and, and the reason that's important is that it tells us a lot about God's grace and about the way Jesus rolls. The boy was healed not in response to the man's faith. The boy was healed beforehand. To the point that I I think, and we kind of wrapped up the last section talking about this, that the boy would have been healed regardless of what the, the father had done. 
Why? Because Isaiah 55, 11, God's word never returns void. Now, don't miss this. Since Jesus uttered the words before the nobleman believed the word, his son living and the fever leaving was not dependent upon his belief or subsequent obedience. And, and that leads kind of to a larger question. What's the point of the story, right? Now, now I want to point out two progressions that occur within the text that I think are insightful. First, John tells us the man believed the word, right? And then was obedient to head home. But following word that the miracle had actually taken place and realizing it had been Jesus who had healed his son, John then tells us that he himself believed along with his whole household. So if earlier in the passage we read he believed the word of Jesus, at the end of the story, what does he now believe? I think it's an honest question. <laughs> you know, as I mentioned, the man was hopeless. Life had thrown him a nasty curve he couldn't catch. He was completely desperate. What could he do? He had done everything he could and nothing had worked. His son would die and he's powerless over his circumstances. And yet, you know, here's the truth of the man. His pressing need was not his core problem. While his son was sick and, yeah, likely to die, the truth was that this man, along with his entire household, you know what? They were lost in their sins and they would die an eternal death. The man, the noble man's core need wasn't the healing of his son, it was a savior. Consider that when the man initially came to Jesus, he did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the savior of the world. That wasn't his confession. All the man knew was that others had said Jesus could perform the miraculous, and that was kind of enough for him, right? He was that desperate. He came to Jesus, he proceeds to beg for Jesus to come, to come with him and save his son. I mean, he had nothing to lose. You see, life, as it does to all, had driven this noble man to his knees, and to his credit, it drove him to his knees before Jesus. But please notice, Jesus wanted to do more in this man's life than heal his son. What did Jesus want to do? He wanted to reveal himself to the man as his savior. Like, like come back to the progression. The nobleman was willing to come to Jesus, not really knowing who Jesus was. And since this was the case, he's convinced Jesus would have to come back to Capernaum to heal his son. It was the limitation. Jesus then rebukes the people for seeking signs and wonders before turning to the man and simply saying, go, your son lives. Now, to the man's credit, he believed the word of Jesus, that his son was alive. But it was only when he came to realize that it had been Jesus who had actually healed his son that the man ultimately comes to see Jesus for who Jesus really was. Same as the Samaritans, that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world. <laughs> At that point, should there be any surprise that the man now believed in Jesus along with his whole household? The willingness to obey Jesus' word undoubtedly set this man upon a journey by which he could see the miracle and have Jesus revealed for who he actually was. Disobedience, doubt concerning Jesus' promises would have prolonged that. Maybe even to the point that his whole life he wanders, never finding out of God's blessings. But our story's clear. It was the moment the man realized the miracle had taken place before he had done anything that caused him to receive Jesus as his Savior. Think about it this way. The reason belief in and obedience to God's word is so important in the Christian life 
is not that God's blessings are contingent upon them, but that they enable us to experience God's grace sooner than we would have otherwise. Like, friend, don't be mistaken. Your obedience is not the linchpin to God's blessings. Obedience just expedites the process of you seeing these blessings quicker. So yes, obedience plays a role, but not the role you think. Consider for a moment what deepens your faith in Jesus What deepens your love for Jesus? Is it deepened by a belief, a belief in obedience to God's word? Is that that what deepens your faith? Or, Or is it the moment you come to realize that God's blessings were never dependent upon your obedience or performance in the first place? You see, this is why, friend, grace changes everything. It's not learning about Jesus. It's experiencing his grace. Let me hammer home this this point another way. How do you really know someone loves you? When their love manifests as a reciprocation to your love? Or when you see their love manifest without any condition at all? Like when you earn love or when love is freely given? Let me illustrate that. Think about marriage. Ladies, what's the more meaningful moment? Your husband giving you a spa day after he returns from a two-week business trip? leaving you with the kids or when he unexpectedly drops the kids off at grandma. So the two of you can go enjoy the spa. (laughs) It's easy, right? After two weeks alone with the kids, the spa day is a necessary reward. Good grief. You have earned it. The truth. That's the least your husband who had been gone for two weeks could do. Give you a break. Fellas, what's better? Your wife capitulating to a little adult time because you begged and honestly there was just nothing good on Netflix or coming home from work only to find that the wife had sent the kids to grandma for a night and she's picked up something you know a little sexy from home goods I don't know use your imagination it's radio gotta be careful but my point what yields a greater endearment when Jesus works in response to your obedience or when his blessings manifest apart from your specific involvement. I know that there are some of you out there thinking, Zach, 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 don't you sound like a Calvinist? Well, first, shut up. No, don't sound like a Calvinist. Free will is all over the passage. Free will oozes from the passage. Like the nobleman, in his desperation and obvious need, he still had to make a decision to act upon his limited knowledge of Jesus and come from Capernaum. And once the man arrived, he still had to humble himself, right? Make a request of Jesus to heal his son. Like his decision to then obey God's word and trust in God's promises undoubtedly expedited the entire process and the grand reveal. And yet, when it was all said and done, this man... He had to accept the fact that it had been Jesus who healed his son. He still had to accept that fact. I mean, the very act of believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world, it demanded from him the most important decision of his entire life. Free will is all over it. Now, I'm running out of time, so I need to speed this up, wrap it together. But there's a lot you can glean from this passage. 
But this is what I want you to see. Friend, belief in and obedience to Jesus' word will set you on the path of seeing all of the blessings God has for you. And more importantly, will set you on, on the path of seeing Jesus for who he really is, your savior. But never overlook this truth. It's Jesus' grace, a love that he demonstrates free of condition that will endear a person like this nobleman to Jesus for the rest of their life. A belief in God's word sets the stage for a person to experience God's grace and place their faith in Jesus. The nobleman believed Jesus' word, but it was the moment he saw that Jesus had healed his son before he believed that changed his life forever. This man came to Jesus desperate to see his son spared a physical death, and yet when it was all said and done, this man, along with his entire household, now believed in a Savior who would give them eternal life. That's powerful. Friend, grace... God's grace, it really changes everything. Well, you've been listening to the Outlaw Radio Show, and if you, if you liked what you heard, I want to encourage you to do two things. Contact your local station. Tell them you're thankful they're carrying Outlaw Radio. Secondly, visit our website, outlawradio.org. You can quick links to Facebook, to Twitter, but our podcast is available on iTunes and Google Play. This will allow you to listen again to this episode in its entirety or all of the previous episodes. Once again... Hey, God's grace changes everything. Don't forget it. I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show. You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.